BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Seashells may seem a curiosity, but in a new book, The Sound of the Sea, environmental writer Cynthia Barnett makes a case for their centrality through history. Indigenous people from what we now call Emeryville to the Andes Mountains built their cities and societies in part with shells. Shells have been money and the centerpieces of legends and evidence in some of our most important scientific theories. In our time, shells hold another message for a humanity that is denuding and deranging the oceans. Barnett writes, The mollusks symbolize all of nature in being exploited and brought to the brink of what is bearable, the dissolution of their exquisite homes in an acidifying sea. That's all next on Forum, after this news. For millennia, human beings have been fascinated by seashells, their intricate architecture and bewildering variety. But they are more than mere trinkets, as environmental journalist Cynthia Barnett argues in her new book, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. Seashells have helped explain the history of the earth and the animals that make them foretell trouble in our warming oceans. Barnett joins Forum and me, Alexis Madrigal, from the clutches of Tropical Storm Elsa in Florida to discuss the mysteries and messages of seashells and their mollusk makers. Welcome, Cynthia. Thanks so much for having me on. Are you, are you okay down there? There is a tropical <laughs> storm, and you came into the studio. I did. I will say that I uh, got through uh, got through the tropical storm to get to the studios. The University of Florida is actually shut down today because of the storm. Uh, but as I made my way here, it was just sort of a steady deluge and a little bit of wind, some clumps of moss in the streets. So nothing too bad. I was fine. And I'm happy to be here with you. Well, thanks for thanks for making the trek. We appreciate that. <laughs> um, harder, harder than the trek from the you know bed to the home office, like a lot of people have made. Um, I want to ask you about something which I'm sure you've been asked about uh, many times, which is the nursery rhyme that we all learn about seashells. She sells seashells down by the seashore, hard in particular for me. Um, But there's a real story behind that little nursery rhyme, isn't there? There is a real story behind the nursery rhyme. And 
oddly, people don't ask me about that, and I think it's because it's so difficult for people to say <laughs> she sells seashells by the seashore. So um, the the poem is is said to have been written about Mary Anning. So she was the British fossil expert who was un, unknown for a very long time who was really important in the legacies of her fossil discoveries around the Jurassic coast of England. And in fact, one thing I learned while researching this book, I, I, was, I was researching Charles Lyell, who is sort of considered, he is considered the father of modern geology. And it, it's really interesting to think about how we think of scientists as lone geniuses and after, as we think about the progress of science when you look at when you look at Charles Lyell's life and his work there were people really important to him who weren't credited and Mary Anning is one she's a bit more well known now because she was she was in a the subject of a major feature film last year but for a long time she was anonymous and known only by that by that poem she um she collected ammonites and and all kinds of interesting fossils along the Jurassic coast and and sold them to seaside visitors which was her family's business but all of these really important scientists would come there and not only buy her by by the fossils that she had found but they would they would ask for her help so for example with Charles Lyell she helped him measure cliff falls along the Jurassic clo- uh, coast but none of that uh, none of that work is mentioned in his in his papers and another person who was really import- important to his science was his wife Mary Lyell who was a shell collector and a and a taxonomist in her own right who knew a lot about fossils. And I just have to mention one more really fascinating group of people who helped Lyle. This is a story that I, I don't think has been told, although it, it is in his own in his own writings. When he would come to the United States and tour the plantations of the Deep South, he learned that fossil seashells were regularly turning up in the cotton fields and in the wells. And when he would try to ask the plantation owners what lay beneath their fields, they didn't know because they hadn't dug the wells themselves or done the excavation work. So it turned out that enslaved people who were working these fields knew the land and knew its fossils. And so he relied a lot on the enslaved people he met in the American South. And they really contributed to his science in profound ways. So these are some of mm. the people, Mary Anning and many others, who, whose voices I try to uncover, you know, these hidden voices within within the history of shells. Yeah. And it, it really is a fascinating book that takes us all, all over the world uh, on your travels and all through time. Uh, why are shells so important in the history of sort of deducing the Earth's geological record? So it's uh, I I came to think of shells as the Earth's great fact checkers, and and you're right. Part of it is the geologic record. They have been they have 
marine life and life has been making shell for so long, about 800 million years, that it that the, the shells we walk upon, the shells in Earth, in the geologic strata, on the mountaintops, are some of the best geologic indicators of what's happened in the past and environmental indicators of what's happened in the past. So geologists, you know, and I, I really think of them. The interesting thing is that we always wanted to listen to shells, and they really did. The amazing thing is that they really did have something to tell scientists. So in early science, seashells on mountaintops were clues of, you know, the seas the seas having once covered the land and geologic change. Uh, seashells in in, in the strata could speak to a long ago past. And today, what's fascinating about the really old shell fossils, you know, hundreds of millions of years old, is that they are telling climate scientists what, what past climate looked like and how different animals evolved to deal with those climates. So they're just, they're just wonderful fact checkers. And I, I came to see that not only in science, but also in humanity, you know, in the, in the other stories I report, everything from Neanderthal people to Native American people, seashells tell a more accurate story often than the you know, the vanquishers who got to write it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go into the science just a little bit here. How, how do mollusks, which make these shells, how do they actually do it? So it is a process known as biomineralization. And, and the mollusks, I, sh- I should back up a moment and say the mollusks, of course, are in the sea and on land. The land snails, there are, that are snails at the top of Himalayas and like everywhere in the world. I wrote here about seashells writ large because I thought that would be a neat way to draw people to some of the impacts of of what's happening to the ocean. But marine mollusks that make seashells essentially draw minerals from the surrounding sea and build the shell as they grow. So a really fascinating thing about how they build them, the gastropods, which are these uh, the, the single shell that is in this shape of We think of them as snail. A, yeah, type. in the shape of a spiral. They, uh, they, build, they build the shell around an invisible axis starting at the very tip. So when you're holding up a beautiful spiral shell, the very tip at the top is where the animal began its life, where it was when it was a baby. And all of its life, it's been working to draw those mineral minerals from the surrounding sea to build the shells as they go. So um, the, the primary mineral that they use is calcium carbonate. And, and that's you know, one of the reasons why they are being impacted by climate change. So interesting. How do we explain the sort of sheer variety and beauty of all these different types of shells? The incredible variety and in, in beauty is a function of protection. So one of the really fascinating, one of the many fascinating scientists I interviewed for this book, who I believe you've had on uh, maybe a couple of years ago, is is. Professor 
Gary Vermeer at UC Davis, who is known for his theory on the evolution of shells. And it's basically all about protection. Uh, when you look at evolutionary history, as fish and, and crabs got fiercer and fiercer over time, uh, the, the mollusks that were their prey had to evolve different kinds of protection. So, you know, they're, they're, the spikes and all of these things that are so beautiful to us are all about perfect, protecting themselves from the fish and crabs and other predators that were getting more and more fierce over time. Does that explain why tropical shells are so fancy relative to what we get here, you know, in sort of cooler waters? <laughs> the tropical shells are a bit fancier uh, in, in part because of the warmer seas. So it's a bit easier for the seashells to take up minerals in warmer water. And it just allows them to build a bit more of an expensive house, if you will. So they're sort of really efficient home builders, and they use they use the minerals around them, but they also build for their environment. So in addition to protecting themselves for, from predators, of course, they're building for their local envi- environment in the way we do, except they wouldn't they wouldn't build, you know, these really ostentatious places um, with with air conditioning and rooms that aren't being used, right? They're really efficient and they build what they need. But the reason for the difference between some of the gorgeous tropical shells, say where I am in Florida, and a little bit more, how to put it nicely, utilitarian. a little bit more utilitarian shells where you are has to do with water temperature as well. We're talking with Cynthia Barnett, author of The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. What are your questions about seashells? What's a seashell or a treasured item you've found along the beach? And what are your concerns about the future of the ocean? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Cynthia Barnett, author of The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. Cynthia, you recount several fascinating stories about indigenous people and their uh, relationships to different shells. Um, You know, the Calusa people in Florida, the Cahokia civilization in Mississippi, Chavin de Huantar in Peru. But maybe we can start here in the Bay Area and what some people know uh, existed here, the shell mounds in Emeryville. 
Yes, it's it's a really incredible story in the in the early in the early twentieth century. A, a Berkeley archaeologist who surveyed the Bay Area found that no fewer than four hundred and twenty seven major mounds had surrounded the bay and they were all they were all completely gone already by that time um and and it's the same story in Florida so um the the Ohlone people in California had turned shell middens heaped up by bay dwellers for thousands of years into settlements and burial mounds and the largest was at what is now Emeryville between Oakland and Berkeley. And it was a great place of ceremony. And in the late 19th century, developers built an amusement park, Shell Mound Park, at the base, and they sheared off the top for the dance floor. And revelers there literally danced on graves. And in uh, 1924, the mound was destroyed to make way for industrial development. And there are these... There are these incredible black and white photographs in the in the archives of you know just all these spectators standing around watching a steam shovel tear into the mound and haul it away. Mm. And this happened, as you noted, all over the country. Um, down where you are in Florida, it seems like an astonishing amount of indigenous history was destroyed for development. It was. And and the interesting thing about Florida's indigenous history, I think it's not as well known as Western indigenous history or even Midwestern indigenous history. It's it's sort of a story that has been unfolding more recently. But the Calusa of Florida, like the Cahokia people in the Midwest, built these great cities of shell all over southwest Florida. Some of these mounds were so large that archaeologists estimated 200 people could gather, for example, in a, in a chief's house atop a mound. I meant to say 2,000. I'm not sure if I said 200 or 2,000, but two, it's <laughs> 2, just such, a, That's a lot. It's such an astonishing number. It was hard for me to say it, but 2,000 people would gather on top of these mounds, and they were just um, just incredible places. And and at around the same time uh, as as what happened in in your part of the world, the people who developed modern Florida uh, flattened those and and took them away, mostly to make roads. Our early roads here in the early twentieth century, the roads were shell roads. So roads, and they were also they were also spread on farm fields, and um, there was a. I came across this one paper with a fascinating detail about the about the mules who were who were hauling the shells and spreading them over the fields. They were so sharp the the bits, uh, especially from the from the spiral shell that the the mules had special little shell booties on their feet to avoid being cut. Buy all the shells. Now, it, it wasn't only sort of for the production of, of cities and, and homes. There were also important ceremonial purposes to a lot of the shells. And, and the story it absolutely shocked me um, was about the sort of pre-Incan Peruvian people and their use of, uh, of large shells. 
Yes, I, I love that story of the Shaveen people. Uh, these, this is a this is a story that I that I reported from your area as well. There's a wonderful archaeologist at Stanford named John W. Rick who had been he had been uh, digging around in Peru for his whole career. When about 20 years ago, at the site of Shaveen, uh, he unearthed the first of what would be 20 conch shell trumpets that were used for ceremony. And it was really the fascinating thing about the story is the the importance and like gravitas of their of their use. So in, in a kind of a dark way, we think of propaganda as a as a modern phenomenon, but the science that has gone on at Chavine really show that some of these conch trumpets were used as propaganda. So it's, it's a little hard to explain, but I can read a small bit if you'd like me to. Sure. Uh, Chavine's conchs and the manipulation of their sound leave disturbing lessons of human nature, class, and control. John Rick concludes that Chavine's temple complex which had been choreographed behind the scenes with intent to unnerve, mystify, or even terrify worshipers, reveals the rise of public manipulation and the lengths with which elites would go to build and maintain their authority. So the the fascinating thing that happened was that pilgrims would come from all over the Andes, and the priests who used the conchs could make them sound like a jaguar's roar or the actual voice of the oracle. Mm-hmm. They know from the uh, from the architecture of Chavine that they were able to throw these voices around, and it's just a it's just a fascinating story to think about. Not only the sound, uh, the sound that the shells make, but the use of propaganda. You know that long ago is pretty yeah. amazing. We have a lot of calls coming in. Apparently, Great. people like their seashells. So I want to <laughs> I want to turn uh, to some calls. Um, Ken in San Francisco. Hey, good morning. Good morning, uh, Ken. Question. Hi, uh, I I comb the beaches of San Francisco, and usually the only things I find are crab shells and sand dollars that are all dried out. I don't see any actual shells. Is there a reason for that? Good question, Ken. Yeah, that's that's a good question. So interestingly, ar- around the world, uh, people who study marine mollusks who are who are called malacologists, some of them who have done surveys of how marine mollusks are doing around the world, find that they're doing okay in those parts of the ocean that are pretty far away from people. But in parts of the sea where there has been, especially where there's been a lot of coastal development, they're really struggling. So I don't know the specific species in in San Francisco Bay, but I would suspect that if there are fewer animals living there than there have been in the past, that it would be a function of the amount of uh, coastal change and coastal development that has taken place there. And that's certainly the case 
in Florida, like a lot of a lot of marine mollusks here, and this is the case in other parts of the world too. Um, they're again, they're okay except in places where we have torn out seagrass, torn out mangroves, and you know destroyed the places where their uh, where their larvae are come into the world and and so on. That's that's a great question. Yeah, Holly provides some backup accounting here. I grew up going to Ocean Beach in San Francisco every weekend with my grandparents. The beach was a treasure trove of beautiful shells. I regret to say that I had a fantastic shell collection. I would bring them home and identify them. I remember shells that started to disappear when garbage, especially plastic, started to wash up instead. And, you know, a, a question on shell collecting um, for you, Cynthia. I mean, uh, another listener had asked, you know, that they see shell-encrusted frames in shops and, you know, other kinds of sort of decor uh, that revolving around shells. Should people not be buying those things and or not picking up shells on the beach? Is it better to leave them where they were found? This is a great question, and I am going to give you a couple of different answers. I've asked many malacologists that, and... The the issue with with picking up shells, it's kind of like everything else in in life, and and some of the problems we face, right? And and Anne Morrow Lindbergh actually wrote about this in the, in the very famous seashell book, Gift from the Sea. She wrote about having too much stuff. She was very prescient that way. And just like we're amassing too much stuff, too much plastic, too much you know, big houses, stuff to fill up those houses. It was like we had this instinct to collect all the shells on the beach, right? And it's really, I I think it's important to be able to collect a shell or two when you're out at the shore, particularly when you're with a child who is, you know, who might be getting introduced to the wonder of nature, like the collar you had, or like in my childhood. Those those moments are really important. We want kids to be able to play with shells and not just, you know, not just plastic objects or, or Pokemon, which is also inspired by marine mollusks. But we don't need to collect all the shells on the beach, right? Mm-hmm. The other point that's really important is that Picking up a shell, especially if it's a native shell, and of course if it's empty, is a better thing to do than to buy a shell in a basket in a shell shop. Because those shells often came from Indonesia or somewhere else in the Coral Triangle where some of those species are really imperiled by overcollecting mm-hmm. and where where some of the fishers are are impoverished and um you know get get hardly anything for the for the shells that they bring in so i think i think it's you know like a lot of what we're dealing with there is a way to still love nature to to collect one thing for the for the windowsill and and not pick up all the shells on the beach. I think that is a metaphor for so much. Yeah. A listener also tweeted along these same lines. I was recently in Cancun, and there were vendors everywhere selling huge cells, shells. Is this a sustainable practice? I'm going to guess your answer to that is no. Yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's not. <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring in Roger from one of my favorite towns in the Bay, Crockett. 
Good morning. Appreciate the show. Um, the uh, sound effects in South America to scare the peasants reminds me of the Catholic Church propaganda. But by uh, comment, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead, Roger. My comment is I was lucky enough to go to a shell mound down south of uh, Dumbarton Bridge, and uh, they had a. it was like cut like a pie section. You could see different layers of shell and a hundred year, thousand year uh, dividing. But they found some glass beads and I know where they came from, but maybe your guest knows where these purple glass beads came from. Also in Goldendale, Washington, Sam Hill, there's a museum there. They have a wonderful big collection of California baskets, Bay Area baskets that the women made. So, Uh, do you have any idea where that glass bead came from in the South Bay? Yeah. Um, maybe I can just zoom out your question a, a tiny bit, which is just to say one of the things that the shells in your book reveal is sort of the vast trade networks that existed between uh, different indigenous people in the Americas, yeah? Yes, that's another fascinating thing about shells is how often really important shells are found inland, far from their original homes. And in fact, the farther a shell would have to be traded from its original home, the more value, the more value it had, and sometimes the more uh, sacred it became to the to the people. So that's that's true. You know, that's true with the conch trumpets that have been found in Lake Balatone in Hungary and in uh, interior southwestern United States. Uh, There are a lot of wonderful seashell objects from Southern California area. I have to to mention something else because your caller mentioned the Catholic Church, and and I wanted to mention that the Spanish colonialists really cracked down on trumpet shells under the rules of the Inquisition, which banned instruments associated with ancient religions. But but people, Native people love their conch shell trumpets and other kinds of shell horns so much that they kept blowing them. <laughs> yeah. You know, there it isn't just in ceremonial use or even in, in building of, of cities and, and structures. Shells also became an important form of currency, particularly in the cowrie shell, right? Yes. So the first the first global money was not cryptocurrency, as you hear the crypto guys saying sometimes. It was the money cowrie. And actually it shares the it shares the Greek root, the, the name of the genus, these are cowrie shells, is Cypraea, which shares the Greek root with cryptocurrency, cryptos, meaning hidden or secret. And the first worldwide currency was this gleaming white cowrie shell called the money cowrie. And it's, it's a remarkable story. These were small shells that were harvested en masse in the, in the Maldives for a thousand years, and their harvesting was overseen by a series of really powerful queens, some of them Islamic queens. And the, the sort of devastating side of this story is that money cowries purchased an estimated third of the enslaved Africans that were forced to the Americas. So for this book, I 
decided to follow that, you know, unlikely trail of the money cowry. I, I visited the Maldives um, because, you know, that too is important in the climate change story. And I also visited West Africa and did lots of interviews there with archaeologists and anthropologists about cowries and, you know, the, the impact on, on West Africa. And that is that is one of the more important lessons in the book. I I set out in this book to listen to what seashells had to say about what was happening to the earth. And seashells actually had a lot more to say about how we treat one another and about the story of, of humanity. And that was true, you know, from the from the Shell Mound at Emeryville to the coast of West Africa. Yeah, and I want to get into that more after our break. I just one of the things that shocked me was that cowries, you write, circulated longer than any single coin or paper money in history. That's right. Um, Maldivian cowries were as important as gold in their time, definitely. Wow. And how many of them were in circulation? Oh my gosh, millions. These are these are very small little shells and one thing that was so great about them as as money is that they were the exact same size and they were, were really easy to bag up in in money bags or in ship ballast. So often traders would go to the Maldives and fill up their entire ship ballast with money cowries and then and then trade them uh like I said all all over Asia and then and then ultimately in Africa. Wow. We're talking with Cynthia Barnett, author of a fascinating book, The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. What are your questions about seashells? What are your concerns about the future of the ocean? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll be back with more with Cynthia Barnett after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Cynthia Barnett, author of The Sound of the Sea, Seashells and the Fate of the Oceans. And I think it is time to talk about the fate of the oceans. I'd like to bring in Karen from San Jose. Karen, can you hear us? Yes, hello. Hi, I'm so sorry. Yes, oh, no thank problem. Thank you for taking my call. I, um, I'm curious because we've heard of these really devastating um, tales and, and, and figures around plastics in the ocean. And I've grown up here in California. I, um, I love the ocean so much, and I've passed that on to my daughter, who also loves it. And, and I'm just devastated to hear about how much plastics have really overrun and, um, and been so harmful to much, much of our ocean life. So I guess my question is, is two parts. One, 
what have you seen in terms of the impact of plastics on um, shells and shell life? Uh, but then also, do you have any hope for, for those of us who are really feeling a bit hopeless about just how devastating the plastics issue has been for the ocean? Um, do you believe that there are solutions aside from us uh, limiting our use, of course, um, that we can really clean up and, and help fix this problem mm-hmm. long term? Thanks for that, Jean. Cynthia? Thanks for that. I mean, great... Karen. Apologies, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that great question. The 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 ingestion of of plastics by marine mollusks is a really uh, really sad part of this story. There is no place on Earth where scientists open a pair of shells and do not find plastic bits in the mollusk inside. The plastic, these are even microfibers from our yoga pants, are showing up in the bodies of marine mollusks, like at the poles, even where there are no humans anywhere near. And so the plastic plastic has become a crisis. And, and you you said, are there solutions other than us not using so much plastic, and and the solution has got to be that we reduce demand for plastic. Uh, I I devote a I devote a chapter to a very a very surprising story. It's the, the book is built around twelve really iconic marine mollusks, iconic seashells in history, and the and the chapter on the murex which perhaps Alexis was going to ask me about later, but I'll hint about <laughs> no, go now. go ahead, go ahead. Okay. The chapter on the murex tells the really surprising story of a Jewish shopkeeper in 1830s London named Marcus Samuel who loved seashells and traded seashells. This was the time when Victorians loved shells and he was importing them from Japan and he had this wonderful little curio shop. That shop ended up becoming, in the next generation with his sons, it ended up becoming Shell Oil, uh, one of the largest oil companies in the world. And, And it's a bit of a long story how that happened. And I I want to make time for other callers, but the son, Marcus Samuel Jr., who formed Shell Oil, and this was this was essentially to keep up those trading relations with the East, but now sending oil in tankers through the Suez Canal. Uh, Marcus Samuel Jr. would talk about the need to create markets. He always thought that the fossil fuel itself was not the important part of the business. The important part of the business was creating the market. And that is exactly what Shell and other companies that make plastics, also with fossil fuels, have done with the global plastic market. So it really is going to be a matter of of, of our, our choices not to use plastic and, and moving away from you know, the world of plastic that we live in now. Yeah. And, of course, the other thing you can do with fossil fuels is burn them. Um, let's go to Wynn in Menlo Park. Thanks. Uh, my question is, are seashell animals related to coral reefs, and do they grow in the same way, and are they affected by the changes in the ocean in the same way? Yeah. 
both the warming, maybe you can answer uh, both about ocean warming, like actually getting hotter, as well as the acidification problem. Sure. So uh, corals and marine mollusks and other other, uh, hard hard builders of uh, shell use minerals – in the in the surrounding environment, as I as I mentioned before, they're both prone to acidification and warming. They're they're not the same animals, but they but they build up in similar ways. And so, climate change is changing the chemistry of the ocean, and that is making it more difficult for mollusks to build their shells and weakening some shells. And some parts of the ocean are already becoming too warm for mollusks. When it comes to coral reefs, they are the the acidification in the ocean and the warming will bleach coral reefs. So it's a little bit of a different process that is happening to each each uh, group of animals. But basically, the carbon dioxide we send into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels has turned seawater about. 30% more acidic than it was at the start of the industrial era. So this this chemical change, again, it's called acidification, has begun to limit the carbonate that mollusks use to make their shells. And acidic waters are also boring into some shells, pitting or eroding them. And then the other side of the coin is that the ocean's have also absorbed almost all the excess heat that's been trapped in the Earth's atmosphere. So already some places have become too warm for the shell-making animals. And I and I have to say one more thing about that Murex chapter, and this has happened since I finished the book. The reason I called the shell oil chapter the Murex chapter is because Murex were being impacted by plastics in that same part of the world where the first shell oil tanker went through the Suez Canal. That tanker was called the Murex. The Murex animals in in the book are being impacted in that part of the world by plastic. Since I finished the book, I did an interview on this a few weeks ago, malacologists who are studying the Mediterranean and and an area that's one of the fastest warming parts of the ocean on Earth found that murex, once the most common animal there, is not is not showing up at all. Mm. So it's just you know an incredible an incredible irony. I think one of the things that your book really drives at, and I'm just going to quote from it here. Uh, is the concept of sort of the interconnectedness of all these ecological um, problems. So here, here's you, your own writing. No one thing is broken. It's rarely only the harvest. It's rather the exponential growth in harvesters and coastal development and the destruction of seagrass and the rising carbon emissions that have made the past five years the five warmest for the oceans in human history. And as I read that, you know, if it were just one of these problems, maybe – it seem what might seem like there could be a simple technological solution to them. Uh, oh, how do you imagine solving such a complex, interconnected set of problems? Yeah, the the interconnection is so true for both the wild animals on Earth and for the environment and for us. Someone was just talking with me about the 
condo collapse here in Miami. And it was really a similar conversation. There is, you know, because of climate change, that building may have been weaker because of sea level rise, but there are all of these other things that increase the stress. So whether an ecosystem or a built system, anything that's been weakened in some way will be increasingly prone to the next stressor. So when it came to when it came to marine mollusks, so those that have been over-harvested, such as the beautiful chambered nautilus or the queen conchs, uh, of course, where you are, the, the abalone, those animals are going to be more vulnerable to coastal development and other things, and, and ultimately to the changing climate. The answer is that we will come to live differently and the and the caller was asking if i had any hope about this and i i do and the reason i do is because i write a lot about environmental history and i'm i'm interested in you know problems we solved before my my last book was a cultural cultural and natural history of rain and my my last time on your station was to talk about that book and the story of acid rain which you really don't hear about very mm-hmm. much anymore that is something that we solved on a global level that is you know just kind of out of out of mind now and there are all kinds of really hopeful stories going on around the world with overharvesting, I was just in Puerto Rico last week reporting on some queen conch farms that are going in a- across the Caribbean, and so there are these there are these really important lessons uh, from from mollusks and of course from all nature that if we would listen, we can get there, and and I think we will because I think when you look back at history and, and human ingenuity that uh, we, will, we will live differently. It's just um, on, a, on a really small scale. We were talking about shell collecting. When I was a kid, there were, uh, there were boiling pots in the, in the motels all around the Florida coast so that tourists could boil their shell, their, the marine mollusks alive and get their shells. We don't, we don't do that anymore. We, um, we've learned more about the importance of seagrass. California is a, is a leader in, in coastal protection and, and conservation. So I do think we can get there, but it's got to be a matter of, uh, you know, more people understanding what we're up against. Yeah. Let's do a little lightning round and answer some more listener, okay. uh, listener questions. Francisco in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Francisco. Can you hear us? Francisco? Okay, let's go to Jean in Menlo Park. Picture of Owen. I'm doing fine here. Oh, hi, Jean. <laughs> oh. Hi, Jean. Welcome to the show. Hello. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I had a question about a different kind of mollusk. I. I think they're mollusks, and that's the uh, slugs that we uh, try not to step on around here. <laughs> uh, where do they fit into the uh, overall picture? Uh, thank you for that, Gene. 
Yeah, thank you for that that beautiful question. The the slugs, I think what you're thinking of are are land snails, the snails we see in our garden or like you said you see them you see them out um inching inching around. They're they're very important. They're part of this larger world of mollusks. And I will say that land snails or slugs are far more imperiled than marine mollusks. And again, the reason for this is that they live closer to us, right? They're Mm -hmm. interacting with humans, so they're more immediately imperiled by our our pesticides and our development and our other impacts. Uh So interesting. Let's go to Lee in San Francisco. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Lee. Hey, uh, I had a comment pertaining to the... uh, the uh, statement that your guest made about currency uh, shells being used as currency throughout the world was the first currency. Mm-hmm. And I and I have a tendency to, and she threw in Northern Africa. I have a tendency to disagree with that because I think the shells was used for peasants throughout areas because it was, it was available to them. But throughout the world, it was gold. If you go back and silver, if you go back to Mecca, and you go back to Timbuktu, there was nothing but silver and gold. And so to, to say that Europeans always try to reshape history and say, we invented this. No, you did not. It was not a worldwide, it was not a worldwide uh, currency. And that's, I, that's my comment. And if your guest comment on that, I would appreciate it. Yeah, sure. sure. I I'd be I'd be happy to. The caller is right that gold is is super important and an early currency. But the uh, one one of the leading historians on cowrie shells is named Bin Yang, and he has a wonderful book that I would recommend called Cowrie Shells and Cowrie Money. A global history, and he is among the scholars. And and of course, I'm I'm an environmental journalist, so I relied on I relied on on scholars around the world and and interviewed people all over the world for this book. And he's one of the scholars I relied on who has found that uh, shell money shell money spread more widely and was used longer than than any other money, including in any kind of uh, gold or any other kind of metal coins. But I can't argue the fine points of gold versus calories. And, the, and of course, you know, another another issue here is that they were they were both used in this in the slave trade, uh, gold more in North Africa and and calories more in in the middle, in the mid-coast. Huh. Um, let's go to Craig in Sonoma. Hello? Hi, Craig. Hi, Cynthia. Hi. Hi. I was wondering, I got just to the end of the show, but have you spoken about the red abalone, um, Mendocino red abalone? I'm an abalone diver. I've got many, many beautiful abalone shells and hundreds of little pieces that I've accumulated over the years. And I was wondering if if you had any information on like the the pieces of abalone being used for currency, like with the coastal Indians, huh. or anything you have on the red abalone. Great. Yeah. So, well, I I will say that 
I I made a decision early on when I when I first started out to write a book of of seashells. I had planned to include chapters on abalone and and oysters and and clams and other important eating uh, shellfish. And it became it turned out to be so big that I had to cut back. So I cut back to these twelve really iconic shells. And also there is a book out. There's an entire book out about abalone. Uh, we'll, we'll have to look up the author's name here in a moment. There's a wonderful new book out about abalone. There have been books on, on oysters. A friend of mine named David Berger wrote an entire book about razor clams. <laughs> so I didn't devote a chapter to abalone, but I, of course, write about you know, the incredible beauty of abalone shells, you know, this this pearlescent inlay, which is actually some of the strongest material on earth. And I just I just love that part of the story that I I kind of came to think of the marine mollus as the original artist for so much, right? And then that architecture gets passed on and used in in jewelry and money and even our iconic buildings are inspired by some of these shells so i i really love abalone and i actually uh have have some abalone uh, jewelry that's really really special to me that's a great place to end we've been talking with cynthia barnett author of the sound of the sea seashells and the fate of the oceans a fascinating book for lovers of the oceans and seashells I'm Alexis Madrigal. You've been listening to Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.